0: It is good and right to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and that psalm in particular is a, I'm guessing, is probably one of your prayers as you look at what is happening in our world today. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 3, the last few verses of Paul's letter this morning. After you've said all of the important things that you meant to say, what is left to say? Sometimes the final things are also important, right? That final, I love you, at the end of the phone call or the bottom of the letter, the closing prayer or benediction of a a worship service, or more broadly speaking, someone's last will and testament where their wishes are explained and then carried out, these final things are important. After Jesus had come, after he had taught all of the important teachings, after he had performed all of the important miracles, after he had done all of the important things he came to do, like fulfilling God's promises, making disciples, establishing the The new covenant, after perfectly keeping God's law and going to the cross for our law breaking, even after being put in the grave and then triumphantly raising on the third day, he still had a few things to say. And those final things are important. Luke records his final words in Acts chapter 1 verses 6 to 9 as this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus' final words, final words on earth anyway, are important. Because in those final words, he's commissioned the apostles to, to go and bear witness that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That for all who would receive him, who would believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. The final things are often important, and this morning we're going to look at the final things that Paul has to say in his letter to Titus as we, believe it or not, finish our study this morning, the epistle to Titus. And it's common in Paul's writing, as you get to the end of, he's written numerous letters in the New Testament, as you get to the end of one of his letters, that he he rapid fires a bunch of imperatives, do this, do this, do this, pray without ceasing gather together, greet one another with a holy kiss. He, he offers final rapid-fire lists of commands to be followed, as well as some sort of greeting before his clothing closing with a, with a benediction of some sort, as he does in most of his letters, and Titus here is no different. So let's just read this. Titus chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 8 through 15 through the end of the chapter. So Titus 3, beginning in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. Help us especially to to remember this phrase, grace be with you all, and to, to understand what that really means. What it is to see, to know the grace of God. The grace through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we need to consider these these final verses of Titus in the context in which they are written. Without going back again to review the entire book, um, remember that that Paul said at the very beginning of this letter to Titus, he's reminding Titus, he said in, in chapter 1 verse 5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, to put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. To put what remained into order. He's writing to instruct Titus, and then by extension us, in the art of orderly churches. So let me ask you this question. And I want you to really consider this. What is the earthly purpose of the church? What's the earthly purpose of the church? The heavenly or the eternal purpose of the church is for the Lord to gather to himself a people for his own possession, a people who have been redeemed, a people who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, who have been purchased by the blood of Christ and and set free from their slavery to sin in order to spend an eternity in the freedom of Christ's real presence. But what about the earthly purpose, the here and now? Why is it important to be a part of a specific church? There are actually many reasons for this, or at least many ways of answering that question. But let me just give you two passages that point us in the right direction. The first is probably the one that maybe maybe even popped in some of your minds, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, which says this, "And, And he, that is Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now that's, that's a mouthful. But it really gets us thinking in the right direction as to the earthly purpose of the church. The second passage that I want to bring to your attention is right here in this page, really, right here in Titus chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through 14. Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then verse 15, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The earthly purpose of the church, if we kind of boil it down, Is step one, declare these things. Verse 15 says it's the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And is this preaching that God uses to redeem us from all lawlessness? And then step two is to purify for himself a people for his own possession. To redeem and purify his people. Jesus uses the church to do this. Another word for Uh, purify there in Titus 2 uh, would be sanctification. Romans chapter 8 verses 29 and 30 says this, For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he also called. Those whom he called he also justified. Those whom he justified he also glorified. So the So the simple way to answer this question is that the earthly purpose of the church is to prepare us for eternity. The earthly purpose of the church is to prepare us for eternity. That really is what Paul is writing throughout this letter and even as he comes here now to the end. And I pointed out that when Paul writes, he's... He's writing this letter in particular in cycles. He keeps coming back to specific points and topics and themes that he wants to stress. And so this is a a letter about the proper ordering of churches as we prepare for eternity. It's a letter about correction and instruction. It's a letter about training and and discipleship, about, uh, about conforming us to the image of Christ. This is a letter of discipleship that's about, it's about constant growth and development as we are being saved, as we are being transformed, as we are being made holy. And so as we conclude this letter, I want to take a, a quick look at some important things that Paul includes here at the end. We're going to outline the verses like this. Let me give you my outline. Verse 8 is devotion to. Devotion to, verse 8. Verses 9, 10, and 11 is avoidance of. So devotion to, avoidance of. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are examples for. And verse 15, grace with. Devotion to, avoidance of, examples for, and grace with. So let's start here by looking at true devotion or devotion to. Let me read verse 8 again. The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, sanctification, or being purified by the Lord, we understand this is a lifetime of development. The refiner's fire is often more like a smoker than it is an instant pot, right? It's all day long. It's a lifelong of sort of low heat burning. Sometimes it smells good. Often it doesn't smell very good. There are times in our lives where we might go through a a quick trial and our sin is burned away quickly. For the most part, the Christian life is one long, slow, and steady work of the Lord where through the, the ordinary means of grace... The ordinary coming to church each week, the ordinary gathering with the saints, hearing God's word proclaimed, singing the same songs over and over, we are conformed to the image of Christ. It is God using those ordinary things as he convicts us of sin and conforms us to the image of his son. We can see this kind of behind the scenes, so to speak, in verse 8, which has two parts. The first part is specifically for the pastor, for Titus, and the other is for the church itself. So the first one is sound doctrine, and the second is good works. And it's vital that we get this in the right order here in verse 8. So notice that he begins by speaking specifically to Titus, and he says this, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. I've already alluded to it. But look over at chapter 2, verse 15, and see the the similarity between chapter 2, verse 15, and chapter 3, verse 8. Declare these things. Insist on these things. It is no coincidence that when he says declare these things and insist on these things, it follows right after, in both cases, he has very clearly laid out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right in the previous verses of both of those passages. The things here, the things are the same things. It's the gospel, it's the truth. Let let me read it again just from this chapter, verses uh, four through seven of chapter three. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Declare these things. Insist on these things. This is why the... The elders, the leaders of the church, are to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught because he is to give his life to the declaration of these things. And again, the order of verse 8 there is vitally important. Paul has consistently insisted that Christians are justified by faith in Christ, by believing in the message of the gospel apart from works. The works come after that. Listen to him clearly state this in in Galatians 2.16. He says this, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. The proclamation of this message... The good news is to be Titus's priority. He is to proclaim these things and insist on these things. Why? Because this saying is trustworthy. And just to, be, just to be clear, the saying that he is referring to, the things that Titus is to declare, can be summarized with the first three words of verse 5. Look at verse 5. The first three words. He saved us. He saved us. Paul will tell Pastor Timothy essentially the same thing in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. Insist on these things. You, insist that your pastor preach that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people to the Jew first and also to the Greek for as many as will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is to be the centerpiece of Titus's ministry. This is to be the centerpiece of pastoral ministry, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. So how does this apply to everybody else in the room? Everybody else in the room who... Do- you know, don't happen to be a pastor. I want to acknowledge that some of you have already left churches where the preaching of the gospel has either been abandoned altogether or so watered down so as to be unrecognizable. Some of you have left churches like that. Others of you have friends and family who are in churches who have stopped declaring and insisting on these things. Churches that have left the gospel, in some cases, generations ago even. We acknowledge that. And this should drive us to prayer. This should drive us to prayer for our friends and our families. And then the real application here is the second half of this verse. Look at it again. He says, So that... Verse 8, let me read it from the beginning again. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is about an entire life change for the believer. What have you devoted your life to? Just don't answer that except in your own mind. What have you devoted your life to? Is it your, your job? That's what many devote their lives to. Is it your kids or grandkids? Have you devoted your life to your hobbies? The things that give you pleasure and enjoyment. What have you devoted your life to? Think of it this way. If you are a Christian... You're among those who have believed in God, who have believed in the good news of Jesus Christ. And because you have believed in God, He has given you the right to be called sons of God, children of God. Therefore, you have a whole new life. Therefore, you have a whole new life with new responsibilities, new devotions. Now that you have come to understand the richness of God's mercy toward you, Paul expects that you will give attention to doing what is good. Now, don't hear my question as heaping law on top of the gospel. Devoting your life to a specific job, that's not a bad thing. Devoting your life to your kids, that's not a bad thing. Or your grandkids, or even the things that you find fun. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But what if we do this through the lens of good works, as Paul describes them here? Now that you have come to understand the richness of God's mercy toward you. Paul expects, the scriptures expect, that you will give attention to doing what is good. To using those things that you have devoted your life to. To doing what is good. To performing good works. And this goodness, good here, is woven throughout this short letter. Let me show you. Elders, for example, in chapter 1, verse 8, are to be lovers of good. Older women are to teach what is good, chapter 2, verse 3. By verse 7, Titus is called to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And even the results of the gospel in chapter 2, verse 14. Christians are to be zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1, we are to be ready for every good work. And this is something that down in verse 14, as he repeats this again, Paul tells us that we need to learn to devote ourselves to good works. As Christians, good works, and that's a very broad category. As Christians, good works should be woven throughout our lives. One author, speaking about this, he said this. He said, Our duties never garner grace, But the doctrines of grace lead to duties of gratitude. What if good works are duties of gratitude, gratefulness, and thankfulness? I don't think I need to give you examples of good works. Because these these duties of gratitude, they're the things that are excellent and profitable for people. And we have a general understanding of things that are excellent and profitable for people. So another author put it like this, The Christians' good works bring life, joy, light, and peace, where before there was death, darkness, sadness, and fear. It is my duty to devote myself to insisting on these things so that you will be equipped to devote yourselves to good works that bring light and life to the, to the people around you whether it is your coworkers, your children, your grandchildren, those that you hobby with, friends, that you are giving or bringing light, the light and life of the gospel to them. But not only are we to be devoted to certain things, you and I both, we're also to work at the avoidance of certain things as well. Avoidance of. Pick it up in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Again, it seems clear that Paul begins by instructing Titus... And then he tells Titus to instruct the church. So there are certain things that Titus is to avoid. And we should see these things as examples, um, especially thinking back over the last couple of chapters. These are examples of the opposite of sound teaching. And his point here is the same as before. It's, it's the, the same point that he made at the end of chapter 1, for example. Don't allow your church or your ministry to become bogged down with pointless debates, Paul is saying. And Paul mentions four debates right here. Two that are general and two that are more specific. So I want to look at them really quickly. And the first he calls foolish controversies. And the word foolish here is actually the word, um, when we translate it, we get the word moron from or moronic Or stupid. In his commentary, um, John Calvin says, says, this is whatever is pointless, trifling and irrelevant. We have all heard of churches that have split over something stupid like the color of the carpet or the style of chairs. Those are foolish controversies, right? Even if we have strong opinions, these chairs are pretty comfortable. The carpet actually is a pretty nice color. But churches can split over these stupid things. And Paul is telling him to avoid those things. But then he gets more specific and he mentions just one word, genealogies. And this one's kind of tough because there's there's no explanation here. He doesn't say what he is talking about, but here's what we do know. This cannot be referring to the genealogies we find recorded in Scripture. Because Paul would not say to Timothy that every word of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, and then turn around and say to Titus, oh, but don't pay attention to these parts. We know that the scriptural genealogies, they paint a picture of the family of God. Especially when we get to Matthew, the opening chapters. And we read of Jesus' genealogy. Or the same in Luke, where those authors, Matthew and Luke, uh, uh, connect Jesus to Abraham and David and and Adam. And we see how God used, for example, Gentile women like Rahab and and Ruth in those genealogies as as he brings the Savior into the world. Those genealogies are important. And even as we study through, for example, in Genesis, the genealogies that are listed there, However, Paul does seem to be saying that we shouldn't waste our time in endless speculation about the people that we don't know anything about. Some of those names and some of the genealogies, all we have is a name. It would be pointless to speculate what it was, who they were, if the Bible doesn't tell us those things. And then the third and fourth debates that Paul warns about here are connected. He says, dissensions and quarrels about the law. And again, these are are both general dissensions and specific quarrels about the law. And it's likely that Paul here is warning Titus not to waste his time arguing with the Judaizers, those who insist that Gentiles be converted to Judaism before they could be saved. Paul says that those arguments are unprofitable and worthless. Now, I do want to be very clear about something. These labels, these four debates that that Paul tells Titus to avoid, these should not be applied to honest uh, biblical inquiry, the search for truth and and meaning in Scripture. So uh, there are those who take verses like this and they will apply the concept to any passage of the Bible that they don't want to understand. Leviticus is hard to understand, and Paul tells Titus not to to quarrel about the law. Therefore, we shouldn't worry about Leviticus. Well, that's not true, because every word of God is, uh, the Bible is God-breathed and profitable. Even the book of Leviticus, even the harder-to-understand passages, uh, same with the begats in the Bible, same with all of the prophecies, Try and read Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They're difficult to understand. And yet they are God-breathed and profitable. See, Paul is very concerned with doctrinal precision. But he would uh, argue that it is not good for a church to speculate over wild theories. Wild theories of the end times that have no basis in Scripture. Fleeting social causes. That we can get hung up on. Paul is so concerned about these things that he warns Titus to deal swiftly with those who persist in causing problems and divisions in the church. It's connected here, it's the same paragraph, verse 10. He says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self condemned. It's pretty straightforward. It's not out of the blue. It's connected to the previous verse. But I want to point out here that, that Paul is Paul's essentially fast-tracking church discipline. Do you see that? If you're familiar with the concept, I, I don't want to go too far down this road this morning. Uh, we're actually going to get there in our book uh, in our study of 1 Corinthians when we get there. But just turn over to Matthew chapter 18. I'm just going to read this. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. i guessing most of you are familiar with this passage, but maybe not. Let me read these verses. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Jesus is instructing, and he says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. compassionate, and yet firm way of dealing with sinning church members, those who are persistent in their sin and refuse to repent. And the sin is not named explicitly in there, except it is a sin against another person. And the context of those verses, Matthew 18, 15 to 20, tells us that it is, A, serious enough that it needs to be confronted. Paul will say, love covers a multitude of offenses. In other words, every little thing does not need to be confronted and brought before the church, right? Sometimes, though, it is serious enough that it needs to be. B, it might be a, a habitual sin or a pattern of sin that is causing damage to people, maybe a whole family, maybe just that individual. Or C, this will really lead the person to destruction. Essentially, what the message of 1 Corinthians, or, uh, Matthew 18 is saying is, we can no longer affirm that you're a Christian, so we will treat you like a Gentile or a tax collector, those who are outside of God's family. In other words, we're going to share the gospel with you because you're not acting like a Christian right now. But there are instances in the New Testament where Paul, in particular, will seem to, it's almost like he skips some of the steps that Jesus talks about. Maybe it's possible that he combines some of the steps or or sees them as unnecessary in every case. So let me show you what I mean. Now turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, we will get there when we get to our study of 1 Corinthians. The whole chapter is actually about this specific issue. But I want to read just the first five verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this, incidentally, this is what the chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians was about, this man. So if you put these things together, evidently he repents. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought not you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We will go over this in more detail when we get to this later. But what I want you to notice this morning is that there is a definite connection here to Titus. Paul treats a divisive church member in Titus chapter 3 in much the same way that he treats someone who is guilty of gross immorality. He does not tell the church at Corinth to to go to the man privately. That's too late. Everybody knows about this sin. He just says, let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. Remove him. If you're not going to repent, you need to leave. Is what Titus or Paul instructs the Corinthians. In Matthew, Jesus teaches with a, with a tone of, of compassionately pleading over and over with the sinner to, to repent that the relationship might be restored. But in both 1 Corinthians and in Titus, Paul is so concerned about the purity of the church that he says that these issues need to be dealt with swiftly. Listen, it is is good and right to fight for the truth, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says. But those who just like to fight, those who like controversy and arguing, Those who like to stir up division in the church, he says, are to be warned. And then when they don't stop, warned again and removed from the assembly. Because that person, Paul decrees here, is warped and sinful and self-condemned. That's probably enough for us for today. But this is a very important topic. One that many churches, including this one, have had to deal with over the years. The last thing that I want you to notice before we move on are the similarities between chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, and chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Titus. Just look back at Titus 1, 10 and 11. He says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. These are the Judaizers. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. He says, warn them once, in chapter 3, 10 and 11, warn them once, if they don't stop, warn them again, if they still don't stop, have nothing more to do with them. Paul continues, and we need to keep moving through this, because not only are we to work at the avoidance of certain things or certain people in some cases, as well as our devotion to sound doctrine and good works, we're also given examples of those who have devoted themselves to Christ's great commission as well. So these are examples of, verses 12 to 14. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Now, a common reaction to reading the book of Titus, just this short three-chapter letter, at least for pastors and elders, a common reaction is a sense of being overwhelmed at the daunting task of putting what remained into order. Um, As he says in chapter 1, and yet as we read these final verses, we should see them as Paul offering Titus some practical relief from the task that he's been given. He's not taking it away from him, but he does give him a break. It's common to read these lists of names and specific instructions at the end of Paul's letters, and I think that one of the things that he's doing, even as we see this, there's four names here, is he's connecting believers. He's reminding us that we are are not alone in this. And so as we look at these four names, in this case, here in Titus, two of them we we don't know anything about. We, We don't know anything about two of these people. And the other two, we don't know much about. Well, at least Apollos we know a little bit about. But we really don't know much about these people at all. And it would be uh, unprofitable to speculate. We know nothing at all about Artemis. When I send Artemis, we only know that Paul writes in 2 Timothy that he sent Tychicus to Ephesus. He tells us that in 2 Timothy, which might mean, let me speculate for a minute, It might mean that Artemis went to Crete and relieved Titus, but we really don't know any of that for sure. What we do know, and the point of this verse, is that Paul promised to send one of them to Crete in order that Titus might join Paul that winter on the coast of Greece at Nicopolis. Nicopolis was a city on the western coast of Greece. It's a tropical Mediterranean city. I'm guessing there are palm trees there. Actually, I know there are. I don't know about for you, but this is so encouraging to me because the Bible actually advocates rest for ministers, for those who are doing the work. And so this may sound a little bit self-serving, but here it is. Here it is in the Scripture. I hope this sets up a precedent in this church Too many pastors worked themselves into an early grave. I've seen it personally. Have you? Charles Spurgeon was 57 when he died. And for his last several years, he struggled with a lot of health problems. Brought about by the stress of being Charles Spurgeon. (laughs) Pastoral breaks are important because of the spiritual battles that we are in. Listen to Luke chapter 5, verse 16. I think the New American Standard puts it best. But Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. This was a common habit of Jesus. I'll talk more about this as the time gets closer. But this summer, Chris and I are going to slip away for a while to rest and be refreshed so that we can come back and, and I can continue to put what remained into order until the Lord takes me home. At any rate, let's, let's conclude this here. Paul mentions two more names. Zenus, the lawyer, that's all we know about him. He was a lawyer. We don't know anything else. And Apollos. And Apollos was a gifted preacher. He was a godly leader. He's actually fairly prominent in the book of Acts and in some of Paul's other writings. And I think the point of these names, really all four of these names, is what Richard Phillips says in his commentary. He says this, what do we see in this, but in this picture? But godly men, gifted by the Holy Spirit and experienced in ministry, who were zealously working together in the vital cause of the gospel. Here is a living example of the good works to which Christians should be devoted, which are so excellent and full of profit. This is what he's saying again in verse 14. The gospel has changed you, so look at these godly men as examples. See that they lack nothing in in continuing to do the work of the Lord and and going on their way and making disciples of, of all nations that it might continue, that the work of God might continue. Sometimes the good works that the church does In this case, it's providing for the needs of Zenos the lawyer and Apollos that they might go out and continue to preach. And then finally, he ends his letter in much the same way that he began his letter, with grace, grace with. Just look at verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. May the message of the church be a message of grace from beginning to end. Remember, verse 4 of chapter 1, to Titus, my true child true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. May the message of this church from beginning to end be a message of God's grace. Grace be with you all. Listen to how John Calvin ended his final sermon on the epistle to Titus. This is just brief. He says, Now let us cast ourselves down before the face of our good God, acknowledging our faults and begging him to make us feel them more keenly than before. May he not allow us to misuse and profane his holy teaching by wrongly interpreting its meaning." But may it rather build us up in the faith of Jesus Christ, so that we may always abide in him and be diligent in prayer and supplication. May our whole life be devoted to doing good and helping our neighbors. To the end that we may more and more learn to grow in the grace of our adoption, which God daily confirms to us. And living as brothers, one with another, may we know him as our father and as the one who welcomes and adopts us as his children. Praise be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Grace be with you all. Pray with me. Father, I am thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for the message of grace and peace from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that God's grace, that your grace is with us each day, that you have redeemed us and give us the strength for every trial and tribulation that we will go through. I thank you, Lord, that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. I thank you, Lord, that you have assembled us together, even now, not not waiting for eternity, though we long for eternity, but that you have assembled us together as your people, a people for your own possession, even today. So, Father, we pray that as we leave here, that we would leave with a greater awareness of your grace. Father, as we come to the table We are reminded of Christ's work. We don't come trusting in our own righteousness, but with your, because according to your great mercy. So we come here to proclaim his death, to renew the covenant, to be reminded of Jesus' work on the cross, to be reminded that he died for sin, to be reminded that he saved us. So, Father, we pray that we would do these, uh, that we would eat and drink to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.